This is IVP. This is The Disruptors, a podcast collaboration from InnoVarsity Press and CT Creative Studio. Metal tracks never been a fabricator, but like MOK, I've been an agitator. Hosted by me, Esau McCauley. I don't think I would have been a New Testament scholar were not for Tom Wright. A professor came to me and said, Esau, if you could go anywhere in the world to study, where would you go? I said, I know exactly where I'd go. I would go to study wherever Tom Wright is. If you're going to do what God calls you to do, you pick up unexpected enemies. And I think that Tom picks up picked up a lot of unexpected in- enemies in his career. That's just the cost of doing work. No one who's ever brought about real change has done so in a way that was socially acceptable at the time. And he shook up the academy. If you look at my biography of Paul, I set it all out about as clearly as I can manage. And uh, I think I think it's an open and shut case, to be honest. But the trouble is in America, an awful lot of people um, just... just pick up as they do with other things the German um, <laughs> you know, overall assumption on the assumption that that's the real scholarly thing and we can discount those uh, silly Brits who get it all wrong we would sit down once a month and I would bring him you know something that I wrote and he would just eviscerate it like just like in a great British accent <laughs> very understated just like rip it apart and so for three years it was just like a deconstruction and reconstruction of my writing style and a deconstruction and reconstruction of how I thought about the Bible and theology. Anytime I disagreed with him, the solution for me was to read the Bible more carefully, not less carefully. Would you would you think that's a fair thing to say that your scholarship has been disruptive in the academy? <laughs> or would you use a different term? Uh, it's not a term I normally use, but I mean, I can well see how a lot of people have have seen my work that way. Um, uh, the usual thing which you say about preachers is that the job of the preacher is to disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. And so th- there's been a lot of people who've been very disturbed by some aspects of New Testament scholarship, and I hope my work has comforted them. There's been a lot of others who've been all too comfortable in what seem to me shallow readings of shallow or even inaccurate. And if my work disturbs them, then hallelujah. I mean, I know that you were um, both ordained and you're in the academy. Did you initially think that you were just going to pursue a pastoral ministry or do you always know that you wanted to do both? Um, No, I mean, I I knew from the age of about seven that I was going to be ordained. That was uh, just just a given. Um, uh, And uh, it was like one of those things, okay, that's what I'm going to do. The only time I really questioned that was when I really fell in love with philosophy when I was an undergraduate. I remember walking around Oxford for a week or two thinking, wow, maybe I should be a philosopher. I could do this. I could study that. It'd be great fun. At the end of that, I thought, you know what? Now, nah, I actually want to do the Bible. <laughs> and I have to. Was there something that happened at seven or was it just a sense or a feeling that came over I- you? I don't know. Um, I mean, there are a lot of clergy in my family, on my mother's side particularly, um, and so it was kind of natural and easy. It's like a sort of family where every second person is either a lawyer or a doctor or whatever. Um, you kind of know what that life sort of looks like. I mean, you at the age of seven, you don't really know what it looks like, but you have a sense, and there are people there doing that job. My mother's father, uh, my grandfather, obviously, and uh, one of my mother's cousins, who was my godfather, um, 
both ordained and, and just people that I wanted to emulate and, and looked up to. Um, but it was much deeper than that in terms of my own personal faith awareness. Um, that, that those terms are just hand-waving things to, to say. Something was going on, I think, between God and me, and uh, either that was just wishful thinking on my part and has been for the last 65 years, or actually that really was the truth. My family tells the story that I don't remember is that we were over, we all gathered in my grandfather's house for Thanksgiving. And that you, you, you hang enough with the Americans to know the, the Thanksgiving holiday. Oh, but, yes. Uh, oh um, yes. So, and they said that I stood up in front of all of the people in our family. And we didn't use the word clergy. We called it preacher because I'm from the Black Baptist Church. And I told everybody I was going to be a preacher at the age of like five or six. And and they and they apparently they said they all clapped for me and I don't remember this I don't remember this at all <laughs> and and I didn't mention it again until I was eighteen and then I said I want to be a minister and they said you told us fifteen years ago thirteen years ago <laughs> and they said they could That's see it. they said they could see in my entire life so you said that you had this moment where you considered philosophy did you I mean in the in the United States there's once again this strong bifurcation between the academy and full-time sure. parish ministry. Sure. Was it in university when you switched over to say, well, when you decided to do academic um, New Testament scholarship? I, I did theology as a second bachelor's degree. I did philosophy and ancient history as my first bachelor's degree. And then I reverted to theology, which is what I'd thought I was going to study first. And then I had the chance to do the philosophy and ancient history. And I'm very, very glad I did because that's been the foundation of everything I've done ever since. Um, but uh, so I, I then wanted to study theology because that's what you did when you were going to get ordained. And it was as I was studying theology that particularly the, the study of scripture and uh, the study of Paul and then also of Jesus, the two main themes of my life, as it were, um, they just came alive in so many ways. And the New Testament was so rich and vivid that I just thought the thing I want to do is to go on studying and hopefully to be able to teach these things, but I never saw that as an alternative to pastoral ministry, partly because other role models that I had, people like my own teacher, George Caird, and the great Cambridge professor, Charlie Mole, and way back 100 years before, um, before, before me anyway, people like Lightfoot and Westcott, these were people who had been both great pastors and great New Testament scholars. And so in, in the British tradition, there was never that need to to split them up. And actually, in the Methodist tradition, as well as the Anglican, uh, Kingsley Barrett, great Durham New Testament scholar, who was out preaching on the Methodist circuit every weekend, and uh, uh, very much a sense that the preaching of the gospel in the churches and the teaching of the New Testament in the academy absolutely go together, as of course has been the case for the, the great Germans, for Bultmann and Kaiserman and people like that, they're preachers. Do you, did you, have you noticed a shift in that between the tradition of having them together, but to see them more pulled apart. Because I came into, when I read my way into the Anglican tradition, you basically just read off the CV of all of the people who had a strong <laughs> influence on me, especially as an academic and as an Anglican. But I right. feel now almost like a man born out of season to be someone who's who's trying to hold these two things together. Have you noticed this shift in your as you look at the academy? Well, it's particularly the American Academy, and and it, more slowly, like most things that happen in America, we do a, a bit more, we follow, but a bit more slowly in Britain. But it has happened in Britain as well, um, and it's partly because 
from time to time in the academy in Britain, um, people get um, all het up about whether theology is a real subject and whether we should really be studying at universities, whether the government should support universities that do that and all this sort of thing, which is really the old secular dragon still flexing its tail and swishing around and trying to um, push theology uh, and so on. Uh, off off the side of the table. And, you know, that's too bad. It happens. We get used to it. But just when that happens, then something else happens to counteract it. That's how it's been for many years now, um, certainly all my lifetime. There have been people raising the question whether theology is a real subject, and the theologians coming back and saying, well, actually, yes, it is, and this is how it works. And by the way, it's extremely important. And substituting religion or religious studies for it just ain't good enough. I mean, a lot of places have done that. Um, but actually studying the patterns of religious behavior in different cultures is a perfectly valid study. It's not the same as theology. Theology is about God and the world, uh, which embraces everything from economics to philosophy to human development to, to, uh, to issues of justice. That, that's very interesting because one of the things that you do a lot in your work is you say, well, you can't treat these people as a simply history of ideas, completely, exactly. completely disconnected from the world in which they live. But you came through the academy during a pretty heady time, at least in American and in British history. How do you feel like the, the context of the 60s and the 70s influenced the, the things that you chose to focus on as a scholar? Yeah, um, I, I think obviously the 60s was a very turbulent time when the generation like mine, the, the boomers basically that were born after immediately after the war, were coming of age and were looking around ourselves and thinking, hmm, not quite sure we like what we see in the 50s and 60s, we want to do it differently. And we were disapproving of Vietnam and we were singing Bob Dylan songs and we were doing all that. And some people, not me, were turning on, tuning in and dropping out. Um, and some of us looked at that whole movement with, with a kind of a sardonic, oh, well, if you must get on with it. But, um, but actually, life is too interesting to be messed up with like that. And that, that was my view anyway. Um, and partly, of course, because... I, I was um, trying to live as a Christian uh, as a teenager and teen, teens and early 20s. But then um, at that time, uh, and I've seen one or two people writing about this recently, when you look back from today's New Testament scholarship to what was going on then, it has been massively different. I mean, people studied Paul, uh, mostly talking about Paul and the law or um, faith and ethics and how that works out and so on. But... Uh, Nobody much was talking about Paul in the Old Testament, Paul and Israel, um, those big things. In fact, I remember when I told a learned German scholar that I was working on Romans 9 to 11 and the way in which Romans 9 to 11 relates to the rest of the letter, then this great German scholar, Heinrich Schlier in Bonn, he said to me, he said, oh, that is very daring, very daring, you know, because in the whole Bultmann tradition, which he had been in. I mean, he'd reacted against it, but he was still within that tradition, as it were. For him, um, Romans 9 to 11 was this separate bit of the letter. It was about the Jews and about the Old Testament. And really, the rest of the letter wasn't about that at all. And it shows you how far we've come. Um, and that was partly Christus Stendhal and people like that, and Ed Sanders, and then I and others have pitched in on that. So that's on the one hand. The other one, of course, being the historical Jesus, that in the 60s, very few people in Britain, uh, or really anywhere in the scholarly world, were writing serious creative stuff about Jesus within history. There were one or two who were, but it was mostly assumed that this was very difficult to do, and that there might be a bit of Jesus peeping through there, but really don't go there. And what would we do with it, even if we did find it? 
And, you know, that has just changed beyond all recognition. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. So as someone who looks back, who I guess who comes to your career, I guess midway through, I, I began, by the time I was introduced to you, I think Jesus and the Victory of God had been published. But but so when I read, I saw that you had this series called Christian Origins, where it seems like you had a, 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 a academic agenda to deal with the issues of Jesus in history, the the relationship of Second Temple Judaism to understanding early Christianity, kind of a revisionary reading of Paul that's bringing us closer to kind of Paul in, in his Jewish and Greco-Roman world. Did you see all of that at a moment? Is this a slow realization of like, these are the three or four things that have to change? How did you conceive of that project? (laughs) That's a great question. I mean, I guess it was bits and pieces coming together, bits of the jigsaw slowly forming, particularly as I was teaching. Now, um, when I was teaching at McGill, which was 1981 to 1986, I was teaching regular undergrad courses and a few postgrad bits and pieces and very much according to a fairly traditional syllabus, this is how it was done in colleges and seminaries and so on in the North American model. And I was trying to break the mold then and trying to do more about Jesus, particularly because of the history stuff. Um, but, but that was feeling my way. It was as though I was um, feeling my way in a strange house along a dark passage. Um, and I didn't know if there were steps or, or, or um, objects in the way. And I was just sort of going very cautiously step by step and gradually finding, actually, there is a way through here with stuff we can do. That was really exciting, but also very scary. As I look at it, I remember reading Jesus and the Victory of God and you walking through. And me and me and Michael Bird had an interview about this. He talked about how his life was changed. During, I mean, you basically go through that and say everybody's doing Jesus history or most people are doing it wrong. Was, were you frightened? Well, it was it, it, it was odd. I remember one particular moment. I, I was my second year at McGill, so that would be the autumn of or the fall of 1982. And I had to teach New Testament intro to a, a, a mixed class of, um, of seminarians and religion majors and one or two people just auditing it for fun. So it's quite a large class, maybe 40 or 50 students of very different abilities. And I thought the best thing to do with them is to start off about um, 200 years before Jesus and do a quick conspectus of this is what the Jewish world was doing in the Greco-Roman period, and this, this is how it all fit together. And I really had fun with that. For a couple of weeks, for two, two or three weeks, I was doing the Maccabees and uh, the, the Herodian house and uh, Pompey and all that stuff. And then uh, after about two or three weeks, we got to the point where we were ready to do John the Baptist. And I had them read bits of Josephus, as far as I remember. And here is John the Baptist. We can see him. He makes sense in the world of the first century Jewish world. Um, And we can see why his sort of renewal movement meant what it meant. And I would say more about that now. But um, hmm, if we can do this with John the Baptist, if he fits in, if his message fits in within this sort of, here we are, we're Jews and we're waiting for God to act. and, and, And I think this is how it's going to go then what's stopping us doing the same thing with Jesus? And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, this is a big step. But I had read Ben Meyer particularly. He was one of my real heroes then and still is. Ben Meyer's book, The Aims of Jesus, because he had actually been doing this stuff in a way that nobody else was at the time. Why do you think, I mean, maybe there's always a sense of an idea in time, because it's possible to go go back and reconstruct and talk about care and talk about Myers and see the influences on you. But for some reason, when you brought it together in a way, was it that the Academy was ready for it? Possibly. Um, 
I really don't know the answer to that. And it may be that nobody will know the answer to that for another 100 years until somebody has an insight and writes a book about it. Um, maybe you will in 20 years' time. Um, but uh, I, I, because I remember doing a paper on this in the graduate seminar at McGill, and my colleague Fred Wissey, um, say, who is a, a delightful man, a Dutchman, but um, at the end of it, he said, he said, well, I hear what you say, but this drives me back into the arms of Rudolf Bultmann. And I'm thinking, oh, well, so be it, you know, if that's where he is. As a historian, it all made sense to me. And I think it was partly that this was the generation that was benefiting from people like Martin Hengel. And Hengel was a great historian. And he was determined that he wasn't going to submit to the Bultmannian ideology. Yes. So it was really a moment of history versus ideology. Um, and it was also to do with, you know, Kaiserman starting after the war saying, actually, the ideology has led us into a fog and it's been a very dangerous and dark place. And we need to do the history. The trouble was, Kaiserman had talked so much about historical critical method, but for him, it was mostly critical and hardly at all historical at that point. But then similar <laughs> things were happening with Paul. So that I think there was a confluence of a, a, a sort of turn in Germany and then people in America being ready for something new because the old generation had taken them so far, but there were a lot of people of my age who just weren't satisfied with where that had got to. But then, of course, in the 80s and 90s, the explosive thing in America was the so-called Jesus Seminar. And so they, in a sense, got the public interested in this. You know, headlines in Time magazine, Jesus never said the Lord's Prayer, and all this sort of thing. Um, and, and so that got people's interest. And so the fact that here was I, who actually had studied the history in great detail, prepared to come out and say, hmm, sorry, these guys are wrong methodologically, they're wrong in their conclusion, they're not using the text right. Um, I think a lot of people were ready to be told something different from the Jesus seminar. In a sense, I owe them a debt because they, they pushed the thing onto the public agenda in a way that ordinary old-fashioned footnoted scholarship really wasn't doing. That's my favorite color. Hey everybody, Richard here, producer of The Disruptors. InterVarsity Press wanted me to let you know that you can go to ivpress.com slash disruptors with an E to learn more about IVP books and get 30% off all titles with free shipping. And now, let's go back to the conversation. The academic in me wants to follow one trail, but I'm going to... The, the part that you said, actually, I can't resist. One of the things that I saw that you that you did, and once again, this is looking at it from the end. By the time you get to what people say about Paul, it's usually built upon a reconstruction, a faulty reconstruction of early Christianity and the nature of the Jesus movement. And you talked about how you went in, and you had a different understanding of Jesus. And I know that Jesus was interesting in his own right, but in the way that you laid out the series, the early Christian stuff follows, I mean, precedes the Paul stuff. Was it because you noticed that connection that the reconstruction of, of kind of early Christianity leads to a certain account of Paul? And did you have to do those things in order? Well, uh, it, you know, it's a funny thing. I went to Jerusalem, as you may recall, in 1989 on sabbatical. And uh, uh, I went in order to teach a course on Paul at the Hebrew University, which I did, but also in order to try to write the book about Jesus, um, what became Jesus and the victory of God. This is back in 1989, which is seven years before the book eventually appeared. Um, and so I realized that what I needed to do was to do a very solid introduction, setting the historical groundwork, not least 
what was going on in the Jewish world, what was the House of Herod doing, who were the Pharisees, what were the scrolls all about, etc. But the funny thing was, I realized quite soon, two or three weeks into my time in Jerusalem, that I was trying to write the introduction to the Jesus book, but at the same time I was doing the introduction to the Paul course that I was teaching at the Hebrew University, and realized I was coming over the exact same material. And I remember one day as I was saying my prayers, kneeling down at the prayer desk in my little room in Jerusalem, and and saying, oh dear Lord, am I really supposed to be doing one volume of introduction, and then a book about Jesus, and then a book about Paul? And back came the answer very clear, well, yes, except it won't just be three, (laughs) because there won't be room to do something on the Gospels, and, uh, and then all the stuff about bringing it together at the end. And so um, at that point, I began with fear and trembling to think maybe I was writing five books. And so that's when uh, the New Testament of the people of God was born as a separate project, uh, which is really designed to be the introduction to Jesus and Paul, because, you know, they're in the same world. It's the world of, of the Pharisees and the Jewish world, but within the wider Greco-Roman environment. So I was then starting to see crossovers and overlaps, and there were um, you know, like counterpoint in music, there were things which were fitting together in ways that one hadn't expected. And, you know, the more you get into that, it just becomes fascinating as an intellectual exercise. But also, since I was also doing a lot of preaching, I did a bit in Jerusalem, but then when I came back to Oxford, I was preaching and teaching. Um, you discover that you go to a passage you hadn't preached on before and it springs up in three dimensions and you can't wait to get in the pulpit and explain it all to people. And then they look at you and say, you gave us a bit of an ancient history lesson there. And then I would say, yeah, that's because you don't know that stuff. And if you don't know that stuff, you will commit massive anachronisms and get the text wrong. So, yeah. And so it goes on, goes forward from there. You talked about you found yourself in the public square. I'm assuming that most people who do New Testament scholarship just assume, you know, it'll be a conversation amongst maybe yeah, people yeah. in the academy. If, you, if we're lucky, we cross over into the church. But you yeah. found yourself in the middle of a conversation on culture. And what I try to explain to my students, you know, because they know that N.T. Wright's kind of a big deal. So they come when he speaks. <laughs> and I said, well, he was on the Colbert Report. And they said, what's the Colbert Report? I said, the guy who does the, um, the, the um, Tonight Show, Stephen Colbert. Before that, he had a show. Tom Wright was on that show, and he goes, "Wow!" <laughs> and I just can't, I can't imagine when you were, you know, in Jerusalem saying your prayers. Did you found did you thought that one day you'd be doing talk shows? So, what was it like to experience that aspect of something that I'm well, assuming was unexpected? That 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 crept up on me. It was unexpected, but um, the, the way the Colbert Report happened was that um, I wrote this book, "Surprised by Hope," which I think is my best known book in America right now. Um, on eschatology, on on resurrection, on life after life after death, and all that, and I think the publishers realised that since in America much more than in Europe, um, people really are fixated on heaven and hell and questions of heaven and hell. Then my exposition of what the New Testament says about the ultimate future was really quite different from what most people assume and expect, and that goes very deep, as I say, particularly in American culture. So my publishers pitched the book to. The Stephen Colbert people. And uh, to their delight and mine, um, that got me on the show, which did the book no end of good. I mean, the book <laughs> shot up the Amazon sales charts. So thank you, Stephen Colbert. And it was a, it was an exciting experience. The only thing wrong with it was that the other guest on the show that day was Cookie Monster. And the answer <laughs> is you should, you should never, you should never uh, go on stage with children and animals. And Cookie Monster is kind of a cross between the two. 
Um, but 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 it did the it did the business for the book. But you see, at the time, I was already a bishop in the Church of England, which meant that as a senior bishop, I was uh, in the House of Lords in London. So I was taking part in public debates on all sorts of issues, whether the economic crisis or the uh, the question of euthanasia um, or, or, or all sorts of things which were going on, which I would have to speak on in the House of Lords from the church's point of view and so on. That was really, really exciting. And in England, at least, bishops are still regarded, although a lot of people wish they weren't, but they are still regarded as public spokesmen on all sorts of different issues. Um, so I, I sort of fell into that role. And in a sense, I've been prepared for it, um, not so much by my time in Oxford, but by my time when I was dean of Lichfield, which again is quite a public role when you're dean of a busy cathedral in the middle of England um, and we hosting all sorts of events, um, like an international arts festival and so on, where stuff is happening which resonates out into the culture in ways which, as you said before, the average biblical scholar doesn't normally expect. But I found I was being asked to speak on different issues or being asked my opinion about major socio-political things that were going on in the English Midlands at the time. And, you know, so you speak into those issues and people say, oh, wow, that's really important. Could you come and do a lecture on such and such or write an article for our magazine or something? And so I was really, again, feeling my way. And here's the thing. Discovering the fresh meanings of the New Testament in their historical form, but understanding in all sorts of ways how the New Testament could and should be relevant to those wider global issues in a way which the older scholarship, which was often very inward looking and sort of exploring what does it mean that I have faith or that sort of thing, that's really aside from the rest of the world. I, I didn't expect to have the kind of profile or strange complex vocation that I have had but I do think that the part of the Spirit-given task of the church, as in John 16, when the Spirit comes, the Spirit will not just lead the church into all truth, as though it's a private thing, but the Spirit will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And how's the Spirit going to do that answer through the articulated um, gospel ministry of the church? So it's always been, to me, um, an imperative to say, how does the work of the Spirit in the church lead to and facilitate and energize and shape the church's message of both warning and encouragement to the world. So then when, now here's the other thing, in the early 90s, uh, none of us New Testament scholars were really talking about political theology, hardly anyone anyway. Uh, Walter Wink a little bit, but not, not so much. But then it was really Richard Horsley and people like that in Boston who were talking about Paul and politics and so on, and were saying, actually, you know, for Paul, if Jesus is Lord, Caesar isn't, and so on. And a lot of people in America didn't know what to do with that. But I was absolutely there. I was just ready for it because my own reading of Paul and of Jesus had pushed me into realizing that if the kingdom of God means anything, it means God's in charge here, and we have to figure out what that's going to look like in practice. And uh, I was asking, ever since Jesus and the victory of God, I was asking myself and my students, hang on, how does this kingdom of God stuff actually work out? Um, what, what, what's it about? And so then when I was put in a position sociologically in Britain, where as a dean and then as a bishop, and in between being canon of Westminster, right opposite the House of Parliament, when obviously there were major public issues which had to be commented on, and I was doing my best to do that, no doubt stumbling and getting some things wrong, but the, the attempt has to be made. So you have this entire history of scholarship that touches on Paul and it touches on 
the yeah. New Testament in its world. And it seems like people are always asking me, well, which N.T. Wright book should I get them to read? And I, I'm trying to figure out what their academic level is and curate a syllabus. But it feels like that in some sense, what you did with the New Testament and its world is a bit of an articulation of that for the next generation. Is that a fair statement to make? Yeah, I would hope so. I mean, originally, I think we thought of it in terms of sort of a first or second year seminary textbook or somebody doing a college course. Um, And then we realized actually what would, and I was talking to somebody who isn't an academic at all just the other day, who was really excited about it, somebody here in Oxford who who has uh, a quite different kind of um, career path. He's he's in in physical maintenance of of a building. Um, But he and his wife, they they go to church, they read the Bible, but they have this sense that uh, they're probably not getting nearly as much out of the Bible as they'd like to, and their church is teaching them a little bit, but not as much as they'd want to know. And is there something which will take them a bit further and give them more grounding? And the answer is, yep, here it is. This is for you too. And so um, I've been really excited by that aspect of it. Um, But but this is a way of saying, okay, I've spent the last 45 years uh, trying to figure out what all this stuff's about. And people like Mike Bird and indeed your good self, you're you're going along and and picking it all up and doing your own thing with it. It's great. Um, now let's pull it together. You didn't stop with this. I mean, I don't want to make it seem like you're retired because history and eschatology came <laughs> came um, right on the heels of that. But as someone who's written so much, what what keeps you going? Like, what is the new area or frontier that you're still looking to explore? It feels like we're being greedy to ask you what's next when you've given us so much. But like, what 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 do you feel on the horizon <laughs> that still excites you about New Testament scholarship? Oh goodness. Sooner or later, I do, I think, want to write a book about Christology. Now, there is a sense in which everything I've written has been about Christology over the last many years. But um, I've never done a sort of standard um, theologian's book about Christology. The Christology is in a couple of chapters here and, and half a section there in the books that I have written. But people who write about Christology tend not to read what New Testament scholars write because um, this is a real frustration for me. Systematic theologians don't expect to learn anything from New Testament scholars. And by and large, the New Testament scholars return the compliment. We don't read too much in terms of systematics or philosophical theology either. And that is to both of our detriments. So I really want to try to do a crossover book, just as history and eschatology is a crossover book on natural theology with a lot of biblical scholarship in it. So I would like to write a, a Christology, which ought to, of course, have a lot of biblical study in it. And to do so from the point of view of this material about temple and Sabbath and about um, the return of Yahweh to Zion and so on, which I've been banging on about for quite some time, but hasn't yet anything like got into the bloodstream of mainstream New Testament, um, sorry, mainstream philosophical or systematic theology. So I would like to do that. And it may be, I don't know yet, that maybe that Oxford might be a good place to do that. At the same time, there are big public issues. There are big uh, issues of practical politics and, and statecraft and the whole Brexit phenomenon in, in Britain and Europe and the whole Trump phenomenon in America. These are things which cry out for fresh word from the church. And if the church speaks without having the Bible in front of it open, um, then you know we're just going to get it wrong. And 
and uh, it's better to try than than not to try. So, you know, so I've worked with various people who've written into this, people like James Davison Hunter of Virginia, people like Francis Collins of the Biologos Foundation, and it's been really exciting to me to work with these people in quite different fields, but to feel that maybe my sort of New Testament scholarship might just contribute to the kinds of projects that people like that are involved with, which are at the cutting edge of of where we are at as a Western society and where the church is at in in speaking into that Western society. So we're, we're just we're just really settling into our new life in Oxford at the moment, meeting old friends and making new ones. And, and, and that that's great, but I'm getting some work done as well. So watch this space. Yeah, one of the things that was interesting that you talked about is related to the issue, like how your New Testament scholarship related to the issues of the day. Because I found myself, I, when I graduated, I, I published my monograph on Galatians. I have another Galatians commentary coming, but the actual, my, sec, my second book that I'm, that I'm dealing with is actually the intersection of the church and ethnicity and justice. And one of the things that I was trying to do is point towards, you talked about how the, how the church could do it with the Bible. And I think that's a really important, if, if I want to say the passion that I received from you, if I'm in some sense carrying on that legacy um, faithfully, is that the Bible has within it, if we do careful historical work, the resources necessary with a little bit of theological imagination to speak to the issues of the day. And I feel like there tends to be two equal and opposite errors. One is to say, in order to speak relevantly to the culture, we need to leave the Bible behind. And then we we engage in whatever we kind of baptize the one of the current political options on offer, or we retreat from all of that and, and we lock the New Testament only in the first century. Was there someone there's someone that you were following when you did that, or that's something that you just came to? Now? Well, well, well. Um, <laughs> as I say, in Britain, there's been a long tradition of theologically-minded bishops speaking into the issues of the day. And Lightfoot and Westcott, my great predecessors in Durham, were two of them. Hensley Henson, in a different way, was as well. William Temple, the great Archbishop of Canterbury in the in the 1940s, um, was another. And Michael Ramsey, likewise, in the 60s. And those are all people that I revere because they're theologically, philosophically astute. Lightfoot and Westcott, great historians and exegetes, Um, But they're dealing with the real issues of the day. One of Westcott's most famous achievements was not um, his text-critical edition of the New Testament, but the fact that in the 1890s, it was he who they called upon to settle a miners' strike in the northeast of England. And he had the, the, the mine owners and the mine workers together for a day, and he did shuttle diplomacy between them, and he persuaded the owners to settle for something more like what the workers were longing for and needing. Um, and to this day, he's a hero in County Durham, not because he was a New Testament scholar, but because he he's, he settled the strike. He was regarded as the miners' bishop. And, you know, that to me is a great model of um, of how somehow the prayerful life of a, of a devout New Testament scholar in church leadership ought to be able to address the issues of the day. Um, and, of course, we can get it wrong and, and we can make mistakes. But likewise, my uh, mentor, George Caird, he was... Um, a leader in the United Reformed Church, which was formed out of the old Congregational and Presbyterian Church. And Caird had never, uh, as, a, as a Reformed theologian, basically, he'd never seen the, the, the argument for a split between faith and public life. And he had his own way of addressing that. And, um, you know, so that 
the, the, in, in my traditions that I have inhabited, there are people who've pointed the way, even though I've done some things differently. But So it hasn't felt that strange to me. I think mm-hmm. part of the problem, to be honest, Esau, is a matter of time and energy, that um, to catch up with the discussion on a particular topic <laughs> takes a lot of time and, and, and struggle. And so mm-hmm. I, I read as fast as I can, and I try and grab bits and pieces of different studies on economics or uh, geopolitics or whatever, and, and then find out who the key people are and try and talk to them and get a sense of where the debates are and then go away and mull it over and preach a sermon and try things out and so on. And that's that's been the pattern of my life. It may be hard for one to think about one's legacy in real time. But if you had to say, what do you hope people take from your life and your scholarship moving forward? What would you hope would be the way that people remember or think about your contribution to the church and the <laughs> academy? I know that's a big oh, question. It is a big question, and it's, in a sense, um, <laughs> I mean, when you get to my age, you start thinking about making wills. I mean, Maggie and I made a will long, long ago where everything is left to each other, and then if we both die, to all our four children, and that's kind of easy. But at my age, you sort of start thinking about, well, actually, who should get this grandfather clock, and who should have this particular ornament, which has been in our family for a long time, or whatever it is. And so I'm, I'm also thinking about the things that I'm doing as a scholar, where is that actually going and what might it do? And I think one of the things that really, really, really concerns me is the unity of the church. And uh, I have done a lot of um, ecumenical work, um, not least with between Anglicans and Roman Catholics, but also between Anglicans and the newer free churches, what used to be called the house churches, the charismatic free churches, and finding a lot of areas of commonality. But the really worrying thing, and I hope that people who read my stuff will get this clear, is that if the church stays disunited, then Caesar, the world, whatever, will take no notice. It's only when the churches get together and speak with one voice on issues like, for instance, global debt. I mean, one of the great things we did in the run-up to the so-called millennium was when, certainly in Britain, the churches all got together and lobbied the government together to say it's time to remit those unpayable debts that our bankers have been charging people in the two-thirds world. We still got a long way to go on that, but we did quite a bit for the Philippines, we did quite a bit for Tanzania, quite a bit for some other countries, and that has revolutionized their economies in ways that the bankers were refusing to, 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 to see until, of course, they themselves had been bailed out in 2008. That's a whole other story. So um, I would hope that people will see the unity of the church, not just as a tired old ecumenical agenda. Okay, let's have meetings with our neighbors down the road and say that we love each other and then go back to doing things the way we always did. And I know it's difficult, but actually we need to find out what we can work together on. And I think with the historical scholarship that I and many others have done, then we should be able to say, look, our foundation documents really make sense historically. This is what they meant at the time. This is what the kingdom of God was supposed to be doing. Now, please, can we do it together, even if we want to worship in separate buildings for the next generation? But let's joggle our elbows and change the patterns a bit. And so an ecclesiology of of unity and mission would be the large thing that I would want people to grasp. But then at the heart of it, you know, Esau, the real thing is I would love to think that a new generation would be excited by this text. When people yawn when the Bible is read out loud, then something is 
catastrophically wrong because these texts are alive. And if we in the church kill them, then we are committing some sort of, you know, theological murder. And that can happen all too easily, both in the academy and in the church. So a sense of the living, vivid witness of the New Testament, that there's always more going on, um, more than we've imagined, and that's really exciting and worth pursuing prayerfully and with all the study tools we can get, but then that it should be informing and undergirding the mission and unity of the church. If it makes you feel any better as a coder, I will say one of the things that is surprising about your scholarship is that it is actually read across the church. The Catholics and Protestants, um, people on both, on different parts of the theological spectrum, have been drawn to. And it's one of the things that I think is really interesting is that everybody, in a sense, assigns um, Tom's work. And I would say this, I and so I mean, so you, uh, so if, if you want to say that uniting the church around the mission of the kingdom of God, then I, w- I would want to say that you've been rather successful. And I would say the other thing that people say, and this is the same thing that happened to me, I talk about this when I teach. Everyone learns the Sunday school answer to every question, and and you people begin to glaze over the text because they know what the pastor is going to say. And one of the thing, and one of the things that was that was exciting for me when I began to read some of your scholarship is that I felt like the the New Testament came alive. And my, I have students who, and this, and you have to forgive me for this. Your book came out. the The New Testament in this world came out. I think in November. And I had finished the first semester of teaching, and this is my second semester. And so I'm go- I was going to wait till next year before I signed it in class. And I had students who came to me, and they like, we signed up for this class. We thought we we're going to get the Tom Wright book. <laughs> <laughs> Because ah, because because right. they they think of they think of it as in some sense exciting and invigorating, and so good, I do want to say good. at least at least at least in the circles that I inhabit that as it comes to reading <laughs> reading across the tradition, you are read across yeah. the tradition, and what you said about the kingdom of God has been appreciated, and there is a sense in which in agreement and in disagreement, like you you require us to engage in a vigorous reading of the Bible. So for that, I want to say thank you. Well, thank you. That's great. I'm I'm delighted. It is. I, I have sometimes said one of the odd things about the way people have received what I've written is that, as you say, the Catholics like it, the Russian Orthodox like it, the Salvation Army like it, um, the the Baptists like it. Some of the people who don't always like it are some in my own denomination, which is kind of ironic, but maybe prophets in their own country and all that. So we're we're, we're still working on that. There are very few people in New Testament scholarship who stirred emotion on both sides like Tom Wright has. Like, don't act like you weren't listening to like Taylor Swift back in the day. Cause now you get grown like I never liked Taylor. You did. <laughs> you did. Don't pretend like when Jesus and the victory of God dropped, even if it was wrong in some details, it didn't provide a, a viable historical reconstruction of Jesus in a context where the deconstructive people held the day. But when you were struggling with your faith in your junior year in college, you read it and you liked it. Yes, you might have some questions about the justification, but don't act like he didn't give you some stuff in your in his commentary on Romans where you have to read Romans differently. And so, like, just respect the game. I can't think of a more disruptive New Testament scholar someone who I felt like was reading the text in a particular way and said whatever the consequences of these readings let you know let the chips fall where they may he did that he was writing in in a sense to the church 
calling on the church to be itself. What is it like to look at a field of discipline, anything, and say, everybody's doing this wrong? (laughs) Or in a sense of significant, and this needs to be rethought of and done in a different way. What, What is it like to be someone who through an accident of history finds themselves at the at the head of a sea change in a discipline. The way that he decided to deal with his place in the public square was to put his head down and do his work and not pay attention to the noise around him. But I think the more than anything that I would hope that, that is his legacy is intellectual curiosity and courage and adventurousness within the context of historic orthodoxy. He, he was a creative reappropriation of orthodoxy. I can tell you a million funny Tom Wright stories, but I got to tell you the ones he allowed me to share. Two summers ago, they invited me back to St. Andrews to speak at, at a conference. And afterwards, I happened to be walking to go get some coffee. And I heard like Tom talking to one of his like fancy New Testament buddies. And I heard him say, that's my student. And the fact that he not only like supported it but he was bragging about it to one of his colleagues was a moment where I was like oh we're here now like it's gonna be a problem I can give up now I keep going settle down not ever knowing won't let my history bury me because I ain't doing this just for me he's always engaging in popular culture although I've taken it in a different road right like Tom Wright is not talking about the freedom of black people on a Tuesday afternoon but the sense in which the Bible speaks to the issues of the day and that careful readings betray like the relevance of the scriptures to our current situation. In my own way, I feel like I'm carrying on, like strangely enough, like a legacy. I feel like I'm a mix of a bunch of things. Like I have this kind of British evangelical side and I have this kind of African-American church side. But strangely enough, those two things coalesce in a way that I didn't expect. Thank you for listening to The Disruptors. We would be grateful if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. You can follow me at Esau McCauley, and you can check out the best and most disruptive offerings from InterVarsity Press authors at IVPress.com. Yeah.